Have you ever heard someone say that data, data, data is is the the new oil. oil. Data is the new oil. Our data is now the most valuable asset in the world, and we are none the wiser. We're not seeing a dime of it. That's not totally accurate. What they're trying to say is just that data is valuable, like oil was valuable, and that corporations are interested in profiting from it. But that applies to just about everything in our modern economy. Data is not the new oil, it's Guano, that is. Now, they don't usually cover this in the standard high school or college U.S. history class. But there was a moment in the 19th century when guano suddenly became one of the most valuable substances by weight in the world. It set off a global gold rush. Well, not really a gold rush, a rush. A race to get as much of that rich avian effluviant as we could. We needed that bird to save our agricultural economy. But our desperation for that sweet, sweet guano meant we didn't think twice about creating the first overseas outposts of what would become a globe-spanning American empire. Does that sound familiar yet? Think of how similar the story of bird guano is to the rise of digital data today. You see, the internet has turned something with previously little value the aggregated information of the masses, into an invaluable resource that propels economic growth, fuels further globalization, and is transforming modern society. Data is the new bird sh- But data is even better than guano, or than oil for that matter. That's because it is functionally inexhaustible. And rather than just affecting agriculture or transportation, data is creating new efficiencies and propelling economic expansion in every aspect of the global economy. I'm Paul Matsko. This is Building Tomorrow, and I want more data. I want some more. 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 Adik. More. Mas. It's time for more, more, and more. Vienti. Porsche. More. Just be. More. Also. Uncle. More. Nobody was more obsessed with poop than the 19th century American farmer. (laughs) Bird crap was the key to mitigating what historians call the agricultural fertilizer crisis. You see, when you're a farmer, soil exhaustion is no bueno. Plants don't just need sunlight and water to grow. They need nitrogen from the soil, nitrates to be specific. Let's say you're a farmer by the name of, oh, I don't know, McDonald. You're Jerry McDonald. You stayed home on the family potato farm when your more famous brother Ronald went off to clown school and then clogged the arteries of American children. How do you put the nitrogen your crops suck out of the soil back into the soil? Here's the way it goes. 
If you are doing the sort of traditional old McDonald had a farmy type of agriculture, you plant things and you eat them, you know, you consume them largely like locally or like on your farm. And, and then, you know, you, you poop and, and, and then the animals eat things and they poop. That's Daniel Immervar, a historian who has written about the guano craze in his award-winning book, How to Hide an Empire. Okay, pooping. That's great. The old McDonald's are great poopers, really just superlative shitters. But how exactly does that help? And basically, the, there's a kind of recycling in the soil. And, and why that recycling matters is that um, one thing that plants need to grow is they need nutrients and, and most uh, notoriously, they need nitrates uh, to grow. And, and nitrates, like, there's kind of... You know, up, up until the 20th century, there's sort of like a fixed number of nitrates. Like the, it's hard to make new nitrates. But despite the weird fact that the air is like 80% nitrogen by volume, it's actually really hard to break that triple bonded nitrogen away from itself and form the compounds that you, that are plant edible, which are nitrates. So, you know, basically all of farming is like an extended experiment in managing nitrogen flows. In pre-modern agriculture, that nitrogen flow was pretty manageable. Subsistence farmers essentially cycled their own poop and that of their livestock through the fields to keep them stocked with nitrates. But when agriculture scaled up, as we started to shift from a society that was 90 plus percent farmers to the current 1.3 percent of Americans who live on farms, that meant the old nitrogen management system was suddenly insufficient. And you just want to grow tobacco again and again and again and just like squeeze as much tobacco out of this soil as you can. And you're not consuming it locally. You're sending it to a distant market. That is an absolute disaster because basically what you're doing is you're sucking the nitrates out of the soil and then you're delivering them in plant form somewhere else. And, it, you know, if you're making if you're growing grain and you're like just doing fields of grain like over and over and over again, uh, you're basically sucking them out of the soil. You're, you're giving them someone else. Someone else eats the grain. The nitrate is in, in their poop and they like poop it out. And if they're in like New York, they like flush it into the, the ocean. And it's gone. And like that, that those nitrates are not going back to the soil. So uh, people in the 19th century, as, as industrial agriculture starts to come online, this is like it's Achilles heel. And people in the 19th century start freaking out about it. They, they recognize the problem. They, you know, like it, basically they just try to come up with ways of like fecal repatriation. Like, could you take the poop from the cities and like bring it back? Like, you know, and then like put it back on the fields like that would solve the problem. I mean, it gets wild. And like the number of, of quite serious intellectuals who have opinions about this like that are gross, like gross opinions about this uh, is is large. Um, and, and you know, we have this, we've solved this problem because we have chemical fertilizer. That's the thing they don't have. But the problem is that chemical fertilizers derived from fossil fuel byproducts aren't available at sufficient scale until the 20th century. But right now, it's the 1850s and crop yields on the McDonald potato farm are starting to fall as the nitrogen in the soil is depleted. And no matter how many EIEIOs you give, you can't rely on the old methods to replenish your farm. What do you do? Your salvation comes from an unlikely source. Off the coast of South America, there are a number of small islands, just dots, really, in the vast Pacific Ocean. But if you were one of a group of oceanic fishing birds, say a cormorant or a Peruvian booby, 
these islands were avian paradise. They were located right in the middle of rich anchovy and sardine shoals, a perfect source of nutrition for young hatchlings, which could be raised on these dry, isolated islands that provided natural shelter from predators and the elements. And these birds pooped. My goodness, did they poop. They fished, ate, and sh**. It was sheer bird heaven. Multiply millions of birds shitting day in and day out for hundreds of years. And by the mid-19th century, these islands had grown from just small rocks peaking above the waves into literal mountains of shit. And that shit might as well have been gold. Because guano is a fantastically rich source of nitrates. Fish are nitrate rich. The bird's digestive system acts like a refinery, distilling the fish down to a purer form, which meant that there were millions of pounds of nitrogen-rich fertilizer sitting there unclaimed in the ocean. Americans weren't even close to the first to realize that this guano had potential. Centuries before, the Incan Empire had relied on guano mining on the Peruvian coast to sustain its agriculture in terraced fields throughout the Andes Mountains, like those you see if you visit Machu Picchu. But the Peruvians didn't have the boat technology or demand to mine the guano islands off the coast. And so when U.S. farmers started to feel the soil exhaustion crunch in the 1850s, the reports from whaling boats and explorers of these entire islands covered in natural fertilizer kicked off a guano rush, a quite literally shitty scramble for the resource. Entire fortunes were made and lost in the guano rush. When Congress was debating some kind of government action to secure the Guano Islands, a congressman claimed, perhaps with a touch of hyperbole, that a single Peruvian island was worth more than the Gadsden Purchase, Cuba, and the entire Caribbean combined. So Congress passes the Guano Islands Act in 1856, which leads to more than 100 islands all across the Pacific becoming U.S. possessions. Indeed, the Guano Islands Act is the first overseas expansion of American empire, which to this point had been limited to westward expansion across North America. American empire is quite literally founded on bird shit. Isn't that astonishing? I mean, certainly nobody involved in this story, not the ship captains claiming the guano islands, not the farm owners desperate for the guano, not even the poor souls mining the guano. None of them could grasp the full implications of the guano rush and how it reshaped their country and the entire world. But the guano mines were exhausted a few decades later, and eventually chemical fertilizers were developed that surpassed the old guano fertilizer, both in cost of acquisition and in nitrogen-replacing efficiency. Today, the U.S. has dropped its claims to most of those islands, leaving them once more the sole possession of the cormorants, boobies, and their offspring. Who knows? Perhaps in a few hundred years, the islands will become mountains once again. But the century after the guano rush, America faced another kind of productivity crisis. In the 1970s, our economy ran out of steam once again. If you're of a certain age, you'll remember stagflation, gasoline shortages, and 
worst of all, disco. Economists call this period in American economic history the Great Stagnation, a time of much slower productivity growth, stagnant wages, and spiraling wealth inequality. In part, that's because the new energy tech of the mid-20th century, nuclear power, didn't pan out for a variety of reasons. The atomic age never fully got off the ground, leaving America dependent on the same old fossil fuel energy inputs, despite the growing awareness of their environmental costs. Yet the economic doldrums of the 1970s didn't last for half a century. Even without new energy inputs, growth continued, albeit at a slower pace. Why? Well, it's because we found new ways to eke out productivity gains without new energy inputs. The rise of the internet boosted productivity, not via the old mechanism, unlocking new, denser energy inputs, but by allowing us to do more with less, to use the same energy inputs, but get a greater return from them. You see, the internet is a kind of sustainability tech. By weaving together people from all over the globe into a world wide web, it makes it possible to identify and exploit inefficiencies in a million unforeseen ways. That allows our economy to be more efficient, to do more with the same material goods. For instance, it's transformed the workplace. You might look with dread at your burgeoning email inbox. And yes, we all hate you inbox zero people. You know who you are. But imagine the bad old days when you had to do all of your business communication in the pre-digital era, writing or typing out a letter, mailing it, waiting for it to arrive, and then waiting for the response. Highly inefficient. But today we think nothing of shooting an email or a Slack message or a text to a coworker somewhere else around the globe and getting a response in minutes. Talk about efficiency. Now, if guano as fertilizer was the key to maintaining America's agriculture-based economy in the 19th century, then data is the new lifeblood of the digital economy in the 21st century. It's data that extracts those efficiencies and propels our economy forward. But the similarities between guano and data go deeper than the fact that both are really important to the respective economies. First, both of them are previously valueless things that quite suddenly became incredibly valuable. That rapid revaluation has made fortunes, toppled governments, and transformed global society. Can you think of anything that's more valueless than bird Guano was a thing that had almost no value on its own, sitting there on that island. But it suddenly became valuable when extracted from the island and placed in a different context, on a farm, in a farmer's field. The same is true of data. Your data is financially worthless on its own. What? I mean, Facebook, Google, they're worth billions of dollars. How can my data be so worthless? Well, it's because data only gains value when it is collected and moved to a different context, when it's aggregated by a digital platform. Here's a simple illustration. My favorite ice cream is Breyer's Mint Chocolate Chip. It's so much better than every other kind of ice cream that I sometimes wonder what's wrong with folks who order Rocky Road or ugh, vanilla. So vanilla of them. 
Now, what's the material value of the fact that I like Briar's mint chocolate chip ice cream? In a pre-digital world, that fact is too individualized and locked away for advertisers to target ads to me. Instead, Briars might hire someone from a madman-esque ad agency to create a campaign promoting the flavor on billboards and then newspapers to a broad audience. But that's a lot of wasted advertising on all of those poor, benighted folks who prefer other flavors. So this data point, this factoid that I like Briars, is nearly worthless in the pre-digital era. But in a digital world, my revealed preferences... from what I search for, the groups I join, what I post, and so on, can be more narrowly identified, combined with others like me, and then used to target ads. This is a win-win for everyone involved. I get more ads and coupons and the like for ice cream flavors I prefer. Briars probably ends up selling more ice cream with less food waste as a result. And the ad revenue goes to more efficient online markets and advertising. Thus, in the digital era, my data, generated by a combination of me and my preferences, plus an online platform, now has monetary value. But there's an important distinction to be made before we go any further. So I think it's useful to draw a distinction between data and information. That's Dirk Auer an economist at the International Center for Law and Economics who specializes in tech policy. So data would be specific, tiny pieces of information that when put together can enable an economic agent to draw um, valuable insights. So in practice, what that means depends very much on the sector. In the tech sphere, data would typically be, I interact with, um, with a digital platform It could be Facebook, it could be Google. And um, in doing so, I generate large amounts of data. This could be the search queries I looked for, metadata, where I was searching, at what time. And tech platforms are going to be able to put those pieces of data together and usually to draw insights about who I am. So, for example, they may be able to figure out that Dirk Auer is uh, a 30-something-year-old male who's interested in barbecuing. And so for them, they'll be able to target ads to me based on that profile. To put that another way, all information is made up of data, but not all data is information. Raw data is just a collection of factoids. Let's go back to my ice cream example. Here's a collection of facts. I like the flavor of mint. I like ice cream. My favorite ice cream brand is Briars. That's data. But information, on the other hand, is how you contextually make sense of that information. If I gave you those three data points, but didn't tell you specifically that my favorite flavor was Briar's mint chocolate chip ice cream, you could probably still figure that out. In other words, using the power of your mind, you turned isolated bits of data into useful information. Information requires more than just data. Information requires data associated with human intellect. So the ability to make sense of those pieces of data. So for example, in the tech platform example, it's one thing to have all pieces of information saying this IP address, search for that query, and uh, maybe 
made a search from that location at that time. It takes something more to then infer the general characteristics of that person and then make that sort of the marketable information that you can then sell to advertisers. Now realize this isn't all that different from guano. Bird has no inherent value in its existing context on an island in the middle of the ocean. It just sits there. But if you change its context, if through human ingenuity and effort, you move it from point A, the island, to point B, a farmer's field, it now has immense value. And not to be too obvious, that required, shall we say, um, effort, both by the birds who it and the company that extracted and shipped it. In our digital world, we generate data as automatically as a bird generates on a guano island. But it's not until that data or guano is efficiently gathered, refined, and distributed that it has value. Our data has no value in and of itself, no real value apart from being turned into information. And that process is a collaborative effort. A platform like Facebook or Google or whomever takes worthless bits of my data, algorithmically analyzes it, and turns it into information with value. You have to understand this point to get just how idiotic it sounds when various activists call for laws or rules that would force companies to, quote, give you back your valuable data, as if you originally possessed something with inherent financial value that was then taken from you by a social media giant and evilly sold for profits. But that attitude betrays a very basic ignorance about both the difference between data and information and how online data markets work. And the danger is that these uh, sometimes well-intentioned souls could pass laws or rules that destroy or hinder those data markets, turning valuable information back into valueless data and making all of our lives worse off as a result. Why is that? Well, here's the second point you need to grasp. Our data, and I'll just use that term instead of information for sake of convenience, it has value because we found a way to drastically lower the transaction costs to create it. That's a bunch of fancy $5 words. Transaction costs is economists speak for the cost of doing business. Let's say you want to buy a Christmas present for your kid who demands an air rifle, and not just any air rifle. You know the one. Buying that rifle doesn't just mean paying for the raw materials that went into the rifle or the cost of manufacturing it. You also have to pay for the expense of the maker shipping it to thousands of stores around the country, the cost added on by those retailer middlemen, the cost of the credit card fees for the purchase, the cost of the gas you spent driving to the store, and and so on. These are transaction costs above and beyond production costs, the cost of exchanging that item between owners. Of course, you can lower those transaction costs by, you know, say, cutting out the retail middleman selling directly to the consumer, or by developing drone delivery technology that decreases pickup costs. Or in a hundred different ways, you can make the transaction more frictionless, which makes the good cheaper and thus increases the value generated by that good as more people are able to afford it. This too happened with guano once upon a time. Although it was primarily a demand-side shock rather than a supply-side shock, 
The development of better boat technology, the excess cargo capacity of old whaling vessels as the whaling industry declined in the 1850s, all of that reduced transaction costs for the delivery of guano to American farms. So to today, global digital interconnectedness has drastically reduced the transaction costs for data collection and use. In the pre-digital era, how would one collect people's data and organize and aggregate it into useful information? I should note, it wasn't entirely impossible. It was just really, really inefficient. Here's one common use of personal information captured from pre-digital data, the Rolodex. If you're of a certain age, you remember a time when any business person worth their salt had a big circular device on their desk containing the cards and information for all their business contacts. This was hugely important. They quite literally taught classes in business schools about building out your contacts and getting a nice thick Rolodex. Fast forward to today, and digitization has lowered all kinds of information sharing transaction costs. Now we all have a kind of Rolodex via our social media accounts. No business school classes required. Furthermore, because the transaction costs for data are so low, there are a thousand novel ways that have evolved to use data in cool, salutary ways. It's not just advertising. That's the lowest hanging fruit. Consider one use of our data that has transformed our daily lives for the better that's become so routine we now take it for granted. Route mapping. I'm old enough that I remember what it was like to prepare for a long drive in the pre-online era. You would pull out your Rand McNally Atlas, not a sponsor, and look up the place you were going and figure out which interstate ran closest to it. But if you got stuck in the traffic jam, you never had any idea how long you'd be stuck there. Could be 15 minutes, could be four hours. So you, you hauled out the Atlas and then agonized over whether you should try to get to the next exit and take the state highways or whether that would get you lost and, and mom and dad would be arguing in the front about what they should do and inevitably you made the wrong choice. It was such a commonplace experience that we based entire movies and TV show episodes around having to rely on directions from random, unreliable gas station personnel. You know, the type who probably just wanted to route you to the nearest haunted house or mountain cannibal tribe. You heard it here, folks. Route mapping saves lives. But today, you just open up your Google or Apple Maps app and let it plot a course for you. I can't remember the last time I got legitimately lost on a trip. You're stuck in traffic? The app will tell you how far ahead the accident is and reroute you. It can do that because a company like Google not only digitized all the maps, but because it calculates from the data created by millions of fellow mappers, just like you, how long it normally takes to get from point A to point B. It even actively encourages drivers to share information about police speed traps and other obstacles. And as a result, we all spend less time getting to where we're going and with less stress in doing so. It also means knock-on benefits like less gas consumption, fewer carbon emissions released into the atmosphere, fewer encounters with mountain cannibal tribes, and so on. So something that was previously locked away and nearly valueless you know, my individual trip planning and route data, 
has now been aggregated with the trips of millions of others, algorithmically analyzed, and turned into an incredibly valuable application that invisibly improves our daily lives. And for every example like that, there are ways that digitally lowered transaction costs will continue to unlock our worthless data and create new forms of valuable information that we can't even fathom at the moment. So we've lowered transaction costs and unlocked the incredible potential value of data. But a question remains, who should own that data? Should I own it? Should online platforms own it? How do we decide? Well, the first step is remembering that this data doesn't exist apart from a collaboration between each of us and the online platforms we interact with. Pulling out of those systems doesn't give you back your data. It just destroys the ability to create useful information from that data. This is fundamentally different from other forms of possession. If you let someone borrow your car, when you decide to take it back, the car still exists. It still has value. If you rent out a room in your house and you decide to stop doing so, the room still exists. It still has value. But with digital data, its value is almost completely collaborative. Thus, the goal ought to be to ease the creation of data that adds value to our lives without making people feel compelled or shortchanged by that process. The creation of data value is good for us, good for online platforms, good for the economy. We want to do more of this, not less. Some people have proposed that the best way to ensure fairness in the digital marketplace is to formalize property rights, to pass legislation that would give consumers some kind of absolute right over their data. And that sounds reasonable, even libertarian given the importance of property rights to economic growth. But formalizing property rights could actually hinder the creation of this new form of property. You see, formalizing a property right often means getting rid of a prior informal system of property that actually works even better. And replacing that informal property right with a formal property right can destroy the value of that data itself. Let me give you a concrete example of those thickets that Dirk is talking about. I once lived on a street called Bentonville Way. It was a fairly busy road in a residential neighborhood, which was great because it meant that lots of folks drove by, including several junk collectors. I call them junk collectors because you could put out your junk and not trash, junk like broken dishwashers and old furniture and it would be gone within hours. The junk men would take it, they'd fix some of it, resell it, or scrap it for raw materials. Think about what's going on there. I had an object that was valueless to me, which otherwise I would have had to take to the dump, but it had value to the junk men, but only so long as the transaction costs were negligible, which they were. The junk was free right there on the side of the road, and the exchange of property between us was informal. Both sides knew that stuff on the public right-of-way was fair game, something that technically still belonged to me, but which I was willing to give to them. And this system worked just fine. This is what data is like. It's trash that becomes junk in combination with another party. One man's trash, everyone else's trash, and a little algorithmic pixie dust can become junk or even treasure. 
I, I think of data not as much as the new oil, but sort of the new trash. So it's something that um, you, it's a byproduct of your online activity that you never cared about or thought about, but that someone else can actually make money from. But now imagine if my busybody neighbor, let's call her Karen, as a concerned, progressive, upstanding, good citizen, decided that this system was unfair, that this junk clearly had some value to me that I wasn't getting back, that was accruing instead to the benefit of the junk men. So my neighbor, oh so graciously, lobbies the town council to pass a law formalizing my property right over that junk. Now, in order for the junk men to take possession, they need to give me some percentage of their proceeds from any future use. They need to sign a contract with me in which I agree to the transaction. They need to file that contract away so that regulators and courts can make sure that the exchange has been fair. And the junk men have to do that for every piece of junk they pick up at every house they visit. What would that actually accomplish? Well, it would boost the transaction costs of those simple exchanges exponentially. Given that the value of my little informal Bentonville Way junk recycling program was not large, it would effectively kill it. That would hurt the junk collectors, of course, and it would not only fail to return any value to me, it would make my life demonstrably harder. Now I have to find a way to get the stuff to the dump myself. In other words, it would turn junk into trash. Sometimes, informal, evolved property rights are superior to formal, imposed property rights. And that is what formalizing property rights in data could do to the digital economy. Rather than returning real value to consumers, it could turn valuable information back into valueless data. It would destroy the value, not transfer it back. To put this in concrete terms, imagine that if every time an online platform aggregated our data, it had to get my express permission. Let's say they were combining my preference for Breyer's mint chocolate chip ice cream with the thousands of others who share my predilection for the sweet, minty, frozen ambrosia of the gods and selling access to that anonymized market segment to advertisers. Now imagine if every single time they wanted to do that under our hypothetical situation, they would need to ask my permission. It's my data. That platform would have to get my affirmative consent for that transaction via, I don't know, a pop-up or an email or a text, or the company couldn't share it. Now imagine them having to do that for every individual user, dozens or even hundreds of times per day. Imagine being that user, getting deluged with those requests. It's insanity. Obviously, the transaction costs would skyrocket, and that wouldn't result in me getting my data back. No, it would just kill the data sharing market. Are you happy now, Karen? Now, if that sounds too fantastical, consider what hath HIPAA wrought. HIPAA stands for the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. You might have heard recently Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene citing HIPAA as a reason for why she didn't have to answer a journalist's question about her vaccination status. But don't listen to Marge. HIPAA has nothing to do with that. 
It's a law passed in 1996 meant to make it easier for doctors and insurance companies to share health data while still protecting patient privacy. But it also formalized a kind of property right over your health data. What did HIPAA actually do? While it required affirmative consent from patients for every data transfer between your doctor and any third party. It's why when you send medical records, you have to sign a piece of paper with a bunch of legalese on it. So it formalized a property right in a particular kind of data, data about your health. But rather than encouraging sharing, it really just jacked up transaction costs. Any violation of the law can result in significant legal liability for providers. But even more onerous are regulatory compliance costs. Remember, your data is supposed to go point to point with no unauthorized third parties in the middle. Now think about that for a second. What's the problem with that conception of data as a thing that simply goes from point A to point B? The internet doesn't work like that. It's a World Wide Web. When you send an email, it bounces between a host of servers, mail servers, DNS servers, all run by multiple companies in dozens of countries around the globe. Email is almost invariably in violation of HIPAA, which is why your doctor's office probably sends you messages via proprietary message system with an interface that looks like something from the 90s. Gee, thanks, HIPAA. And that has harmed the collective health of Americans. To give you just one concrete example, I was once prescribed a heartbeat monitor. I paid a very large amount of money for an FDA-approved, doctor-prescribed, HIPAA-compliant heartbeat monitor. After wearing it for 48 hours, the results came back negative for heart issues, and I went on my merry way. But the doctors only got a tiny slice of my heartbeat history. What if that was a particularly good two days for my heart? What if I had a murmur that surfaces less frequently than that once a week or once a month? Well, I have a smartwatch device that can track my heartbeat day in, day out, and do so about as well as the device that my doctor gave me. That's data that a doctor could turn into useful medical information. But I can't easily share that data with him because it would pose HIPAA compliance issues. Every year, there are Americans with heart problems that will drop dead simply because HIPAA made it too hard to share heartbeat information. It prevents us from turning useless data into useful medical information. And this problem remains true for a host of potential health tracking applications. Our medical data system is a quarter of a century behind our social data system. Why? precisely because we formalized a medical data property right. So maybe we should think twice before doing the same thing to our other forms of data. Thus far, I've been discussing the ways that data is like guano, but I do want to touch on some of the ways it's not like bird at all and why that's a great thing. First, and this is fairly obvious, extracting the bird was really shitty. The odor was incredible, there was no shade, mining companies basically kidnapped people to force them to work on the islands for months at a time and paid them almost nothing. As Daniel Immervar puts it, I mean, I, I asked 19th century historians, what is the worst job that you can have in the 19th century? And, you know, there are a lot of answers, but quantum miner is absolutely up there. Okay, first of all, 
it's um you're a miner so that is bad right i mean like mining it's a really hard it's a really hard job uh you know you're you're breathing in all kinds of particulates um and that's certainly the case in guano mining i mean the, the stuff stunk it had this sort of ammonia smell you could if you were around like a ship hold full of guano the, the accounts of this are that like sailors down there would like in the in the guano ship hold would just come out you know within minutes like with nosebleeds and temporary blindness like it is it, like it is not good for you the other part of it, though, is that uh, to be a guano miner, you're also on an island, which is a unique kind of hell. So you're shipwrecked at the worst job. Eesh. But by contrast, while guano mining was terrible, the creation of data just means you playing six degrees of Kevin Bacon on Wikipedia, watching cat videos on TikTok, or writing a tweet complaining about whatever the latest viral meme that boomers are circulating on Facebook. A little bit different experience, wouldn't you say? Indeed, data's revaluation has had the greatest impact in precisely the places where even small boosts in value have outsized impacts. For example, user data is being used to bank the unbanked in Turkey, to help farmers in India get a better read on seasonal crop demand, and, and so on. In fact, there is a project to create a cell phone app for Kenyan goat herders that collates location data, satellite images of vegetation, and information about local grazing conditions to help the herders maintain a sustainable herd size and prevent overgrazing. Given that 60% of Kenya's economy is livestock-based, this is potentially a big freaking deal. And it's brought to you by data. We've come full circle to agriculture again. Guano boosted productivity by renewing the soil. Data is boosting productivity by encouraging more efficient and sustainable use of what's already there in the soil. So compared to guano, data is a much easier resource to extract and it has a far wider set of beneficiaries. But perhaps the most significant difference is that guano is an exhaustible resource, while data is the ultimate renewable resource. Eventually, the guano was all used up and the guano rush was over. But data is a functionally infinite resource. Every one of the 7.8 billion people in the world Produce it as a matter of fact, and as more and more people go online, more and more of their data is turned into information and made more and more valuable. It will never be exhausted. A data-based economy is here to stay. I, for one, am happy about that fact. If you're not, well, you know, be sure to pick up your smartphone and register your disapproval on the social media platform of your choice so that the algorithms can serve you up some ads for techno-skeptical YouTube videos. But what's next? Is there another resource on the horizon that could do what Data and Guano did, suddenly go from valueless to valuable? You've probably heard science fiction author Arthur C. Clarke's quote that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Well, Noah Smith, columnist, economist, and Twitterer extraordinaire, says that we should get ready for some hocus pocus. I would say that if there's a technology that's similar to the classic definition of magic, which is that we can do things, but we don't understand how we just did them, the principles behind what we just did, but we can systematically do them, then that's AI. I would say AI is, is you know, depending on whether 
you know, how, how far we get with explainability of AI. AI might actually be true magic, which is to say, um, you know, spells that we can cast, algorithms that we can sick on problems that have insanely good predictive power, but whose sort of, you know, but we never understand the difference between the algorithms that do well at prediction, and the algorithms that do, do poorly at a kind of a structural sense. Like, why is this getting it right? If we never understand it, then AI actually is magic, literally. Um, we're casting spells. You see, when a technological innovation comes along, we briefly marvel, then we make it a routine part of our lives, and then we take it for granted. The magical becomes mundane. But with all of these technologies, it's a bit like we're alchemists who finally unlocked the secret of the philosopher's stone. We turned bird sh into crops. We propel our vehicles at speeds that would have boggled the minds of our ancestors by exploding dead dinosaur residue in metal boxes beneath our feet. And now we're starting to turn useless data into valuable information that will create artificial intelligence. Heck, we've already used simple machine learning algorithms to help us predict the weather with ever-increasing accuracy. That might have once got you burned for witchcraft. And more complex artificial intelligence is going to transform all of our lives in ways that we can now, at best, just glimpse. I'm Paul Matsko. this is Building Tomorrow, and I want the next bird In a fitting end to an episode about valueless data becoming useful information, let me give credit to those without whom this episode wouldn't have been worth much more than a pile of bird crap. Thanks to our guests, historian Daniel Immervar, go check out his book, How the Hyden Empire, economist Noah Smith, who has an excellent newsletter at noahpinion at substack.com, and economist Dirk Auer, who is on Twitter at Our Dirk. Our producer is Landry Ayers, with the support of Greta Langhenry, Natalie Dowzicki, and Aaron Powell. If you want more podcasts and content like this, visit libertarianism.org.